0: diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Wow. That was a good one. You yeah, uh,
1: that was a good when, one. When you nice. when you when you when you first started off, I was like, ooh, my goodness. It was I'm not sure if it's the bass in the microphone or the speaker or whatever sound machine Something. this is. I don't know. It's uh it's the, yeah, the it, bone chilling sound, atmosphere
0: good. here in the tundra. Yeah.
1: yeah. That must be it.
0: So a big thanks to everyone for braving the weather and joining us tonight at the Carnegie Center in Minot. This show is brought to you in part by the Minot Area Council of the Arts. We're proud of the work they do in our town and happy to partner with them in this fundraiser show. And this year, the Minot Area Council of the Arts celebrates 50 years of connecting artists, building community, and fostering possibilities. We invite you to join them in celebrating the arts in the Minot region and helping them grow Information can be found on Facebook and Instagram or online at MinotArts.org. Big thanks to the MACA team and Justin and everybody and all that they do. They also have a cool new podcast out. If you want to stay stay up to date with some of the neat things happening in the artistic community, there is a new podcast from MACA. You can find it on their Facebook. Jasmine Mm -hmm. Schultz was their first guest. It was really, really cool. So... Uh, huge thanks to them. Thanks to everybody in the audience tonight for supporting both Maca and Midwest Murder, and a huge thank you to everyone who takes time out of their busy life to rate and review our podcast on Spotify and iTunes. I think that feedback goes a long way to help others decide if they want to check us out. Yeah. Sometimes it's motivating to Don and I. Sometimes others, it's insulting, and it's all okay. <laughs> no, that's right. We like we like to we like to you hear know, about it either one way. way or the other. Either
1: way, it gives us that time to uh, you know to reflect. And uh, really consider if I'm intellectually lazy, and and you are uh, you're forgettable as the guy. Yeah, so, very forgettable. Yeah, yeah, yeah those so, are great.
0: Don, kind of curious, what are people saying about Midwest Murder these days?
1: Well, nothing insulting tonight, thank you. Um, we avoided so, the insults <laughs> yeah. on this round. Yes. So D money. That's seven, not
0: encouraging anyone to insult <laughs> us in a review, by no. the way. Yeah,
1: no, I, I mean being roasted is. Kind of funny Roast sometimes. Us with five star, right? Though. But you know, oh you no, know. they did give us they gave us four stars yeah. when they called me lazy. Yeah, so it was it was something. Yeah, it was I was very confused. It was an emotional roller coaster for a while. Apparently, still is. So D Money seven six five four three one gave us five stars. Live at Atypical. My wife and I checked out the show at Atypical in Minot. Venue was great. Show was great. Hosts were extremely friendly and accommodating. To picks with audience and Q and A. Story was compelling. we Will deaf be deaf? Be back that threw me off because I, I was like, no, that's will deaf be attending upcoming live events. Five stars. Super cool.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Big thanks. Thanks for taking the time, enjoying the live show. Mm-hmm. I think people are curious about the live experience and getting a review that tells folks about that school.
1: Yeah. Miranda Marie gave us five stars as well. Shout out to her for the same middle name as myself and everybody else born in the early eighties.
0: My- <laughs> yeah.
1: My coworker, absolutely love, my coworker stumbled across your podcast looking for, quote, Midwest Murder Files. And she says to me, you have to listen to this one. And what can I say? I fell in love. I'm currently waiting for the next episode to drop and finding it difficult to listen to many more. Love the banter. Love the stories. Shattering false realities since 2020.
0: Oh, oh, shattering so false reality since 2020. That yeah, just gave me the goosebumps. That was cool. Yeah, that's I,
1: love cool. It. I love it that. I love that review said Thank that.
0: Thank you. Big thanks. And again, you can you can review us on iTunes or Spotify. You can also get merch. We've redesigned some graphics and added some cool new stuff and we've gone local. We're excited about that part, that partnership. You can find that link to the merch website on Facebook or Instagram. It's also just too many shirts, too many shirts.com. Midwest-Murder. You can support the show financially at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. You're going to buy us a hot dish. We really like that. It helps us get places, keep the lights on, pay for case files and all other necessary things related to Midwest Murder. And this show is brought to you in part by Midwest Memoirs. Have you ever wondered how the stories of the people you love most will live on after they're gone? Midwest Memoirs is here to help you capture the most precious memories of your loved ones as told in their voice. This is done with research of your family member and completed through a professionally guided interview in a comfortable studio setting using state-of-the-art recording equipment. The most important stories we'll ever hear are those of the people we love most. You can contact Midwest Midwest Memoirs today (laughs) on Facebook or Instagram little kerfuffle there.
1: little tiny one. Yeah. yeah. We're just all about the Midwest, I guess.
0: Our story takes place in 1989. And what a finish to the decade of decadence. Massive protests on either side of the Berlin Wall bring about the collapse of the East German government and the Berlin Wall is breached, eventually dismantled, and the Brandenburg Gate opened. Florida and Virginia allow use of DNA genetic fingerprinting evidence as admissible. Also in Florida, in 1989, Ted Bundy is put to death by electric chair, and his execution is seen as cause for widespread celebration in the United States. And I didn't know this one here. The Madonna single, Like a Prayer, is featured on a Pepsi commercial. The advert is pulled one month later after boycotts from religious groups are widely publicized. Pepsi pulls sponsorship for Madonna's Like a Prayer World Tour, which is subsequently canceled. Now, Don, I think we can agree. Things worked out all right for the Queen of Pop.
1: I, I think so. Yeah. I,
0: no and pun I don't, I, intended with the Pepsi boycott, <laughs> actually, but...
1: I think it worked out well. Yeah,
0: yeah Madonna, she's kicking ass and taking a lot mm-hmm. of names throughout her career. She didn't really need Pepsi. Beijing, China sees one million protesters, mainly students, march through the streets to demand greater democracy. Military tanks in Beijing are halted by an unknown protester. The Chinese man is photographed by Western photographers and dubbed Tank Man. The image of the lone protester becomes one of the most iconic photos in history. The tensions there eventually culminated in the Tiananmen Square massacre. Mm. Back in the United States, 63 people die when the Loma Prieta earthquake hits the Central Coast and San Francisco Bay Area. Broadcasters covering the Baseball World Series are interrupted and games are postponed for 10 days as a result of the earthquake. Viewers in the U.S. see David Hasselhoff and Pam Anderson run along a beach for the very first time with the debut of Baywatch.
1: <laughs> the, Germans, the Germans adore David Hasselhoff and all of the dudes enjoy her... <laughs> Stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The stuff. Yeah. yeah. That, was in, it. that was her, by the way, I'm going to, she doesn't need a plug, but the Netflix documentary is quite interesting. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I said interesting. I okay. I didn't, I didn't, okay. I didn't say good. So I said very interesting. Different. Fine yeah. line. <laughs> in
0: 1989, Paula Abdul and Janet Jackson were crushing the charts and hair metal's final gasp came in the form of poisons. Every rose has its thorn. You know, just like every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. That's, that was it. That was the last of what of what the hair metal had to give us. It was, and it that was sad, it. A sad, sad song. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wait, that was a good joke. It was great. It was well, well executed. Just like a great. Sad,
0: sad, sad joke. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: oh my gosh, you need to stop.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, actually, Midwest murder canceled. We're doing, we're doing karaoke. Yeah let's, light, yeah. let's light it up.
1: Yeah, you guys just wait. It's going to be great.
0: Anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s remembers this commercial. A stern dad leans back against some cabinets, asking the camera if anyone still doesn't understand what drugs will do to your brain. His collar is comically large, his khakis flat and sexless. Flat and sexless.
1: I, don't, I think it's funny because I can picture it.
0: I'm of sure. course you can. <laughs> These are the pants of a man who has not only given up, but willfully clocks in every day to a job he hates.
1: And you know he's got a mustache. That guy's got a stash like a caterpillar. It is there. <laughs>
0: he, yeah, he does. And he stomps across the kitchen and Hissley points out that this egg is your brain. (laughs) Then points at a hot iron skillet and says, this is drugs. Then, sure enough, he cracks the egg into the skillet. The sizzling sound and delicious smell, that's your brain on drugs. (laughs) And that is the world of drug policy in late 80s America. (laughs) Dad lectures, sexless pants, paternalism, and stiff prison sentences on a nationwide scale. Drug prohibition reached its zenith in the 80s when Ronald Reagan reintroduced Nixon's war on drugs. After passing the Comprehensive Crime Control Act in 1984, new mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses made addicts into criminals. What should have been considered a public health crisis was transformed into an explosion of prisons overpopulated with nonviolent offenders. Of all drugs, crack was probably the most dangerous drug to possess. Crack is the answer to the question, what if cocaine was on cocaine? Were a lot of people
1: asking that question?
0: I don't think they stopped long enough to consider, but now that we've had a moment to reflect, yes. As such, it only takes an extremely small amount to create an intense high and often only a few hits to make an addict. Because of crack's sudden appearance and lightning-fast spread to urban centers across the U.S., many inner-city populations were decimated by addiction, crime, and imprisonment. Sadly for struggling families in post-recession urban economies— Slinging crack was one of the more prolific trades. Small time dealers could pull in two thousand dollars a month. It's about five thousand dollars today.
1: I, Few of the two things I got to say sure. real quick. I, one, as a child, I thought I was going to be offered drugs way more than I ever was. Way more than I ever was. It was in like fact,
0: that was promised.
1: It was like it was like you know drug dealers on every corner of my not and quicksand, right? It was like, oh my gosh, like these things are terrifying.
0: <laughs> and if you could survive both of those, there oh, was a tree man. fort on the you other might, side.
1: Yeah, you, you might make it to adulthood if you don't encounter either of those. But secondly, I mean, almost five grand today, five, making, five making you know, as a small dealer, I mean, I know it's not a victimless crime, but with five grand a month, I feel like I could get over it. I mean, it's wow. a pretty easy, you know... <laughs>
0: Well, you're not wrong because few of the available jobs in that era could compete with that level of profit, especially when you consider that all the income from drug deals is tax-free.
1: That's that's true.
0: That's true. Hey, just ask any pharmaceutical company. Ouch. Oh. So this created a perfect storm of drug use, drug dealing, devastation of inner city communities and rising crime. Even though dealing was lucrative, it wasn't, enough, it wasn't enough to maintain an expensive addiction. Muggings, robberies, and car theft all increased steadily in the mid to late 80s. It was a combination of drugs and criminal gig work to keep the dragon fed. In the wee hours of March 22nd, 1989, on the outskirts of Kansas City, Missouri, that wicked combination brings us to a 1984 Monte Carlo thrumming as it exceeds 90 miles an hour. The city lights of Lee Summit, Missouri, fade in the rear view. The ditches flashing blue and red as an officer closely tails the stolen car. Michael Taylor sits in the passenger seat. And Roderick Roger Nunley drives, more calm than you'd expect for someone racing from police. But this isn't his first high-speed pursuit. Bouncing around in the back seat is a load of stolen teetops. Lifted that night from cars throughout Kansas City, a mainstay in '80s Corvettes, Camaros, and other midlife crisis mobiles.
1: No, 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 no. They wouldn't. They weren't midlife crisis mobiles then. They are now. Oh. If you're looking for, you know, a T-top Camaro now, then now it's midlife crisis.
0: I think both. Qualified. Then it was probably
1: pretty sexy, but now it's now it's like, oh, do you need a hug or like, do you want like? Do you want some fillers? This Are you like, how, is, how is it? This is Madison.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the teetops would fetch a decent price on the black market or at the very least traded for drugs at a local chop shop. Five months earlier, Taylor ran away from a halfway house. His residency at the house was to satisfy the conditions of parole from a previous felony conviction. He and Nunley had so far spent the cool spring evening in South Kansas City hawking teetops and punctuating their thefts with weed, crack, and wine coolers. Oh,
1: Bartles and James, you know it was there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nunley's drug of choice was marijuana. Taylor preferred crack or cocaine. So these guys were smoking blunts, snorting cocaine, and robbing teetops all night. Nunley punches the gas, accelerating across Highway 50, the jurisdiction line separating Kansas City from Lee's Summit. The officer pursues the thieves as far as he can before hitting the brakes. He can't enter another jurisdiction for a simple traffic violation, even if it was going 90 in a 55. The patrolman watches the car fade fast into the gold-lit streets of the city. It was 3.42 a.m. on March 22, 1989. Ten miles away, on Manchester Avenue in Raytown, Missouri, Ann Harrison Her parents and her sisters are sound asleep. It's just another Wednesday. Taylor and Nunley drive around, burning time and blunts until a chop shop opens, aimlessly cruising side streets with no specific goals, nothing else to do but burn more joints, pound more wine coolers, and wait for sunrise. Around 6.30 a.m., Anne calls to her mother, Janelle, over the house's intercom system. I'm up, Mom. She gets herself ready for school, a a routine that is second nature to her as a teenager at this point. Dressed in a jean jacket, pink slacks, and pink socks, Anne is ready sooner than usual. And if you lived in the 80s or you've watched any John Hughes movies, you know exactly what her outfit looks like. (laughs) Janelle prepares breakfast for Anne's younger sisters, Deborah and Lisa, and gets them ready for school and daycare. It's the last day of a short school week with a long spring break weekend looming. Anne takes her books, flute case, gym clothes, and purse and heads out the door to catch the bus around 7 a.m. She piles her stuff where she stands, waiting at the end of her driveway. Most kids on her block are picked up right in front of their houses. There is no centrally located bus stop, so the driver just scoots from house to house, picking up students one at a time. Anna's had trouble catching the bus recently, but on March 22nd, she was right on time. Manchester Avenue is a quiet street in a quiet suburb of Kansas City. Raytown had a population of 30,000 in 1989. That's a number that has stayed fairly static for the past three decades. It's the type of place that offers the security and feel of a small town while being only a few miles away from a major metropolitan area. It's a place people choose to live because it feels safe and distance and distant from the madness and bustle of a big city. Anne is wrapping up her sophomore year and is usually busy with various sports or her boyfriend, David Schesser. She's preparing for softball tryouts. Even as a sophomore, Anne is known for toughness and an ability to bring people together. Her Wednesday schedule is set. School, followed by softball, then back home for supper before a quick visit to David's hospital room. He's undergoing chemotherapy and radiation for nerve cancer that he was diagnosed with at the age of 12. So that's her boyfriend of several years now. At just after 7 a.m., Nunley and Taylor turn down Manchester Avenue. The two have now been driving around for about three hours. Taylor, seeing Anne's belongings in a tidy pile, tells Nunley, quote, there go a purse, there go a purse. He tells Nunley to back up, that he's going to run out and snatch the purse and be right back. Nunley reverses the Monte Carlo and Taylor gets out. Taylor approaches Anne and asks for directions. Nunley keeps the car idling and figures Taylor will be back any second with the purse. The two men have done this regularly during their many criminal escapades. This time, though, Taylor leaves the purse, He instead tackles Anne, heaves her over his shoulder, and carries her screaming back to the car. Anne yells and struggles as Taylor stuffs her in the passenger seat, head first. Taylor closes the door as Anne kicks wildly, her head crammed below the glove compartment. She screams and continues fighting until one of the men, probably Taylor as Nunley was driving, holds a screwdriver to her ribs and threatens to stick her with it if she doesn't stop. Taylor asks for something to blindfold Anne with. Nunley kicks off a shoe, removes his sock, and hands it over. Anne cries quietly, still awkwardly tucked upside down in the car's passenger seat, as Taylor ties the sweat-stained sock over her eyes. The sun is just rising as Nunley and Taylor decide to bring the girl to Nunley's mother's house. Tea tops clink in the back seat. Wires from the removed stereo dangle across Anne's arm. To fight means death. Right now, complying is the only possible path to escape. School, sports, a loving family, and cautionary tales about stranger danger are no good now. Around this time, the bus driver sounds the horn in the front of the Harrison's house, wondering where Anne is. All of her belongings are still stacked neatly in the grass, Janelle Harrison peeks outside thinking Anne got distracted by the family dog or maybe ran to a neighbor's house to talk to one of the girls who rides the bus with her. She waves the bus driver on and figures she'll drive Anne to school. It has been seven minutes since Anne left the house to catch the bus.
1: And you, you had said that it usually took her, you know, or she was not usually on time, right? She struggled catching the bus and the one day that she's on time, right? If she hadn't been on time, then they likely would have, wouldn't have passed one another.
0: Yeah. You're not wrong. And it's so fast and it's so close to her house like this, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you could see from where the house was, like you could throw a rock to the bus stop. It's right there. The bus stops along. That was one of the, one of the things that almost bothered me is, well, where was the, where was the bus stop? And that was, there wasn't one. Everybody got picked up individually. When Janelle doesn't find Anne in the backyard with the dog or at the neighbor's house, she calls her husband Bob at work to let him know the situation. Janelle wastes no time, and she calls the Kansas City Police Department to inform them of Anne's disappearance. Before racing home, Bob takes a minute to call his brother Paul, a police captain in Kansas City. The police are mobilized immediately even deploying helicopters to search for the missing girl. Meanwhile, Nunley and Taylor pull into Nunley's mother's driveway. Anne is still blindfolded and upside down. The men get out of the car and tell Anne to crawl so she won't be seen. On her hands and knees, flanked on either side by her captors, she scuffles around the back of the house and enters a dim stairwell that leads to a basement. The three descended into the basement rec room dingy carpet, wood paneling, and a soot-stained fireplace are the only decor, along with some unpacked cardboard boxes and a stack of construction materials in a corner. The basement is unfinished in a sort of house project limbo. I guess when you're busy stealing cars, it's hard to find time for home improvement.
1: Well, and it was his mom's house. I mean, so, you know, he doesn't own his own house. Yeah, He's too busy snorting up his money. How How... Far away were the homes. Like how far was Nunley's house from Ann's house? Do you know?
0: Less than 20 minutes. Not, sure. not very far. It's not, a, it's not a vast distance because they were, they were there in minutes. Mm-hmm. So depending on who you choose to believe, Taylor or Nunley began removing Ann's clothes as she cried softly. According to Nunley, Taylor had, quote, always wanted to have sex with a white girl. And, and on the tail end of a two-day crack binge, he chose Anne, a 15-year-old child, to satisfy that lust. During the heinous act, Taylor stopped and complained to Nunley about needing lubricant, asking Nunley to grab something to help him out. Nunley obliged, grabbing some hair product he called TCB grease, handing it to Taylor, who pinned the weeping blindfolded Anne to the ground while he waited for Nunley to return. After that, Nunley claimed to be, quote, tripping off what's going on, just walking through the house while Taylor violated Ann in the basement. Once Taylor finished, Nunley stepped in and attempted to rape Ann as well, though he either couldn't do it or couldn't complete the act. Having endured the rape in Nunley's dingy basement, Ann was allowed to dress. In a sad, traumatized daze, she forgot to button the top of her pants, buckle her belt, or replace her bra. Blindfolded, violated, and shaking, Anne pleaded with her captors not to hurt her. Miles away, Anne's parents and the police are doing their frantic best to coordinate a search for their missing daughter. While dressing, still blindfolded, Anne begs Taylor and Nunley to call her parents to ask for money in exchange for her release. The men promise to bring her to a payphone so she can contact her family as long as she continues to obey their commands, But these two scumbags have no intention of following through with that promise. Nunley and Taylor, quote, didn't want her getting hysterical and shit if she realized she was going to die. The men took the ruse as far as retrieving a pen and paper, then pretending to write down her phone number and parents' names, all to pacify her. Anne is forced to crawl back to the Monte Carlo where the men tie her hands with a stereo cord ripped from the subwoofer. Anne is forced into the trunk, but she resists. Despite their attempts to soothe her, she can feel the ominous premonition in the air. She's been kidnapped and raped. She's heard their names. She saw Michael Taylor as she waited for the bus. Taylor and Nunley have to keep Anne quiet. In the stark spring morning light, people would notice if she screamed even once. They continue soothing Anne, telling her she needs to get in the trunk or people will see her on the trip back to her house. After more cajoling, Anne reluctantly complies, allowing the two men to lift her gently into the trunk. She curls up and pulls her knees to her stomach. Back in Raytown, police begin their search in the immediate area around the Harrison's house. It has been less than one hour since Anne disappeared. Bob's brother, Paul, is a captain in the Kansas City PD. He personally ensures no stone goes unturned. Canine units, helicopters, neighbors, even local truckers on their CB radios all join the search. Across town, Nunley and Taylor stand at the open trunk. Anne huddled within and argue about what to do with her. Take her up on the offer, call her parents, demand ransom money, release her and hope that the intimidation and trauma erase her young memory? Or take no chances, should they pursue their terror to the ultimate end? Taylor tells Nunley he can't have anyone identifying him in court. The end approaches with every twist of their addled conversation. 24 hours of heavy drug use and no sleep have degraded whatever logic may have existed in the minds of these two seasoned criminals. Taylor says, we're going to have to kill her. Nunley, maybe in a limp attempt to avoid the inevitable, says, we ain't got no gun, man, to kill her with. Taylor tells Nunley to get some knives. Nunley runs back into his mother's house and grabs two a five-inch steak knife, and a large butcher's cleaver. Taylor takes the steak knife and looms over Anne, who is bound with speaker wire and quietly crying in the trunk. Nunley stands with the cleaver, silly, stoned, inert, when Taylor suddenly says, fuck it, and stabs Anne repeatedly in the chest and back. Taylor urges Nunley to join in that, quote, we in this shit together... Nunley attempts to cut Anne's throat with the cleaver, but discovers the blade is too dull to make an incision. Anne's breath hitches as she cries out in pain. Taylor pauses, seeing that Anne is dying, but wanting to ensure the deed is done, he stabs the steak knife into one side of her throat and out the other, then twists to create a wound that is three quarters of an inch in diameter.
1: Can we take a breath for a second? That's a lot, like...
0: Anne bleeds from nine separate stab wounds, many of which have struck her heart and punctured her lungs. Her eyes roll roll back in her head, but she continues to gasp, desperate, beyond all possibility of recovery. Taylor and Nunley slam the trunk shut. Darkness envelops Anne long before she loses consciousness. By coroner's estimates, no single wound caused Anne's death. She remained awake for 10 to 15 minutes and likely survived unconscious. For for about 30 more.
1: 30 more minutes. That's how, that's,
0: wow. Around the time that second period begins at Raytown High School, Ann Harrison is losing her grasp on life. She's bleeding to death in the trunk of a stolen Monte Carlo in front of a stranger's house. A small, white Disneyland button, splattered with Ann's blood, rests under her jacket. In the little suburb of Raytown, sandwiches are sizzling under McDonald's heat lamps. A teacher pours their first cup of coffee. People begin their midweek trudge through the first hour of work. There's so much humming to life at 8 a.m. that it's really difficult to consider such affronts to life as rape and murder. No rising sun considers the atrocities happening beneath it when it shines out its infinite light. It simply is irrespective of the human faults committed in the spreading of gold in the morning on that golden spring morning of March 22nd Ann Harrison expires. She was kidnapped, raped and murdered in the single span of an hour taken just minutes after walking to the bus stop, mere steps from her own home in spite of the police effort and rapid mobilization. The search party never had a chance. Taylor and Nunley argue over how to properly dispose of the body in the car. The men hang around Nunleys for a half an hour or so before they get in the Monte Carlo, drive it a few blocks away, and abandon, abandoning both car and body around 8.30 a.m.
1: I'm sure that, that conversation was like a Mensa meeting. I'm sure it was just like full of intelligence. Yeah.
0: yeah. Complete dulled brains at this point. Yeah. From the sleep, the the adrenaline, the drugs, the just everything. There's... It's so senseless. Somewhere along the road, the men take a bag of Ann's belongings along with the blood-soaked blindfold and stuff it into a storm sewer. The two men return to Nunley's mother's house where Taylor falls asleep. Nunley walks to his girlfriend's house and takes a different car along with the stolen teetops, to a chop shop. He trades them for money and heroin. The men leave Ann's violated corpse in their rear view and continue on with their lives like nothing has changed. For Bob and Janelle Harrison... A few few short miles away, nothing will ever be the same. It didn't take long for Ann's body to be found. Taylor and Nunley left the Monte Carlo parked on a residential street in southeast Kansas City and considered that to be a plenty clandestine for their purposes. Less than 36 hours later, a citizen called the Kansas City PD to report an abandoned car outside their house. The vehicle was first noticed around 8.30 a.m., On Wednesday, March 22nd, and when no one came to claim it, police were notified. Police notified the vehicle's owner, and the owner came to claim the car. When he opened the trunk, panic. He took a step back, excitedly, frantically waving the police over. Ann's body was in the trunk of his stolen car. Ann's uncle, Paul, responded to the scene and identified his niece's body. Still in the hospital, undergoing radiation and chemotherapy, Anne's boyfriend, David Schesser, learns of her death from the nightly news. Police and coroners begin the grim task of exhaustively cataloging every detail about the body and the vehicle in order to give detectives somewhere to start the search for Anne's killers. And while you might think that these two men abandoning a car on a residential street in a large city would be easy enough to trace, Remember, this is 1989. There's no phones in pockets, there's very few CCTV cameras, so there aren't as many opportunities to capture criminals in the act. But old-fashioned street-level police work still has its uses, and the detectives in Ann's case were meticulous in their proceedings. It also helped that Nunley and Taylor weren't exactly stealthy when breaking into cars, it's hard to go unnoticed when your livelihood depends on... I'm sorry, on, I'm
1: sure we're all yeah, surprised by that. Shocker.
0: <laughs> shocker. Yeah, yeah it's, it's hard to go unnoticed when your livelihood depends on taking others' property. And Nunley and Taylor carry the added baggage of regularly being high while stealing.
1: Well, and also, a, a T-top isn't small, right? Like, I mean... You know, it's not like I'm just going to,
0: I don't know what they weigh, but I feel like it's a two person carry, you know, it
1: like... or at the very least, you know, I'm not just going to tuck this in my back pocket. No, I mean, it's, it's yeah. You're going to get noticed, you dummy.
0: And that, that being yes, said, yes, and, and yes,
1: I will say the F word and dummy in one sentence. Like, <laughs> absolutely. Yes.
0: That being said, Nunley was a careful crook. He always wiped down the cars he stole before abandoning them and removed Ashtrays. Remember when cars had those? <laughs> oh. <laughs> he removed the ashtrays so as not to leave behind fingerprints on any of his cigarette butts. Even the Monte Carlo containing Anne's body carried zero trace evidence of Nunley's presence. While police followed every lead they could get their hands on, investigators had to contend with plenty of misinformed oddballs and attention seekers with their own agenda— in keeping with the general theme of the 80s following Anne's murder a satanic cult was created of course right out of My thin God. air and implicated for her murder
1: it was the 80s like yeah, I, it, it, it's something bad happens to a white girl in a suburban neighborhood and it's it must be a satanic cult
0: it's the only i, I mean it's the only logical explanation <sighs> Also, rumors. Of course, it doesn't. It didn't help that rumors circulated. The stab wounds on her body were in a satanic design. Of course, they were. Of course, of they course, were. course, they were. Yeah. yeah. So people were people were calling the tip line with all kinds of helpful information. Yeah,
1: and and the the one who did the stabbing, I mean, can barely find his ass with two hands, but he was smart enough to to do a, 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 a satanic pattern. <laughs> Thank no, you. like, come
0: on. Some callers claim to have psychic powers that showed them exactly what happened to Anne. Others said they saw what happened to her in a dream. Either way, it's a miracle they found some real clues in spite of the nonsensical fluff. They did cobble together some solid leads. What people occasionally forget when something unspeakable happens is that not every criminal is a mastermind, and not every act of evil (laughs) is part of a larger, overarching story. Sometimes, as Springsteen said, There's just a meanness in this world. And that's from the song Nebraska, a story about the Starkweather case, also a murder. And we've covered that here at Midwest Murders, so a very relevant tie-in here to this particular situation. Police followed a trail of stolen vehicles for almost two months before honing in on Nunley. Since his M.O. for stealing cars was fairly unique to him and Taylor, The police had enough to bring him in as a person of interest. Nunley was brought in twice, and both times weaseled his way out. One time he refused to provide hair samples, and the other time he requested an attorney before answering any questions. Now, these aren't likely to be the actions of an innocent man. However, it's not enough to prove guilt either
1: know that we can say that these aren't likely to be the actions of an innocent man i feel like after doing all of this research if i ended up in an interrogation room for a murder and be like i would like an attorney please i i I, fair. you know it's well the
0: attorney thing but if you got nothing to hide you can give your dna i mean right if you got nothing to hide that's the classic line i shouldn't use that
1: i i don't think i don't think i like that I'm, I'm getting a little paranoid in my old age and, and you know, uh, yeah, like I don't, I I need,
0: I need to be as paranoid as I used to be clearly. Yeah.
1: yeah. You're not getting, you're (laughs) not getting, (laughs) you're not getting shit without my attorney, man. (laughs) Yeah. That's, and I'm, I, I am not, I'm not typically the, you know, I, I support police proceedings by all means, <laughs> but I right. don't know. It's, no, I makes me nervous.
0: I, I should be, maybe I should reconsider because I am after all from the F your police, F the police era, You'd, right? Yeah. That was, and I 90s. get,
1: I get the bad rap for, <laughs> for being, for being too hard on law enforcement. I'm not saying I'm that.
0: <laughs> That's just the era I was from. <laughs> right. Anyways, he's really, even not. the most careful criminals slip up and Nunley's major blunder came when he confided in an acquaintance that he and Taylor kidnapped, raped, and murdered some girl a little while back. Nunley claimed that he just wanted to steal car parts and hawk them for drugs, but Taylor insisted on having sex with the white girl. While jailhouse confessions are plentiful, oftentimes they don't hold any water. However, Nunley's big mouth, in conjunction with an anonymous tip made to the hotline, finally exposed Taylor and Nunley to police scrutiny. According to the tipster, Kareem Hurley, a friend of Nunley's, he had solid information that Taylor and Nunley were the ones involved in Ann's rape and murder. He described how the men raped Ann in Nunley's mother's basement and how they stabbed her to death in the trunk of a stolen car. Both of these details were not released to the media. Hurley felt law enforcement could catch Taylor on pubic hair because of the rape, but Nunley would be a slipperier fish. Because of the information provided by Hurley, the police were able to exercise a search warrant on Nunley's mother's house, where forensics found paneling that reacted to luminol testing, as well as knives, clothing, and carpet sweepings that would ultimately implicate both men. The detectives first brought in Taylor, who was currently in Western Missouri Correctional Center in Cameron for a parole violation, after presenting him with the details provided by Hurley, Taylor conceded. He didn't try to fight. He just asked if he could call his mom. He reached his sister instead. Her advice? If you're guilty, tell them what you did. While this could have been a moment of ownership or some sort of attempt at unburdening his soul of the weight of his crimes, Taylor insist- Taylor instead used the opportunity to attempt to pin the bulk of the crimes on Nunley. He gave up hair and blood samples, then gave a recorded statement. Taylor laid out the sequence of events with the nonchalance of someone reciting their grocery list. He explained that Nunley grabbed Anne, initiated the rape, and was the first to stab her. In his version of the story, Nunley ran the show and Taylor was a hapless second fiddle. By Taylor's reckoning, he only participated in the rape because Nunley urged him on. He only stabbed the girl because Nunley insisted that he and Taylor were in this shit together. Based on his statement, Taylor was mostly just stoned and going with the flow, regardless of how disgusting or violent it got. Nowhere did Taylor take accountability or express guilt. He simply told his side of the story and minimized his involvement as much as possible, despite all evidence to the contrary. Once he wrapped up his statement, Taylor was formally charged with the rape and murder of Ann Harrison.
1: I mean, I have, I have to butt in here. And I mean, I've not been around a long time, but I wasn't born last night. Uh, typically when the guy's like no 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 it was not me it had nothing to do with me i was just like the innocent bystander i just had to do it cuz he was doing it i had nothing to do with it i mean usually usually that's a that's a dead giveaway that, that that you that just, you actually did it all that's the of the two that yeah yeah, yeah 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 you're a bigger piece of shit actually yes. so that's typically typically what i found not every case i'm no, sure no not not
0: every case i i feel like your piece of shit radar is pretty strong right now so
1: thank you thank you yeah. i wonder if i could add that to my resume would that be like would that be
0: Let's, hey, let's put it on there. That's yeah. worth some points on LinkedIn, I think. P- piece,
1: piece of shit meter? High. High. Like, very accurate.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, like, one of the few humans you could ever encounter with a piece of shit meter, Don Palumbo. Yeah. <laughs> Normally, such accusations get inmates placed in protective custody. Statutory rapists don't usually fare well in gen pop. However... No one was on hand to authorize placing Taylor in lockdown. So he was sent back to the regular unit.
1: Oh, wait, 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 wait. sorry. No one was on hand to authorize
0: that? No one was on hand to authorize. This is 89.
1: I don't I don't give a shit. 89. If it was 1919. Uh, I feel like a- any correctional officer can make that decision. I don't care if it was the 80s or whatever. I, I mean, the investigation into sure. Sing Sing had already been done. Well, like, we're, we're decades past this. Let's
0: air quotes that no one was on hand then. Let's yeah, air quotes okay. no one All right. was on I feel, hand. I
1: feel better with that. I feel because better with that.
0: Because I think... I I don't know this. I have no way of knowing this. But what happens happens, and I wonder if, anyways, right? Which that makes that makes more
1: sense than saying, "Oh, I no one was on the official record."
0: Don Palumbo, right? Um, Right. We got to go by the official record. No one was on hand. Okay, I'll allow it. I'll allow. Your paperwork's a bitch, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Through the fast-moving prison pipeline of rumors and information, inmates found out what Taylor was accused of. In a twisted scene of convict justice, a group of inmates got together, subdued Taylor, and gang-raped him nearly to death. By the time the guard stepped in, Taylor required emergency surgery and over 80 stitches.
1: I'm going to say what everybody's probably thinking. Uh, I'm sure that was 80 stitches not on his face. That would be my guess.
0: Yeah. Probably a fair guess. Whew. And Whew. No,
1: yeah, okay.
0: No pity here. A day later, based on the testimony given by Taylor, Nunley was charged with murder, rape, armed criminal action and kidnapping. The only issue now was apprehending him. As their informant had promised, Nunley proved to be difficult to nail down. Police staked out his mother's house to no avail. Various car chases ended with him slipping the net every time. Finally, detectives narrowed down his location to a high crime area near Troost Lake in Kansas City. While Troost has mellowed in recent years, it was a hotbed of crime and desperation for decades in Kansas City. Think New York City and Taxi Driver, except more racism.
1: I, I actually can't watch that movie. It it, it bothers me to my core. Yeah. Like, it's it's so... It's rough. Wait, that's not good.
0: The yeah. area of Troost represented the full spectrum of criminal activity in the 80s and Nunley used its bad reputation to his advantage, staying camouflaged for as long as he could Before the cops tracked him down in early July of 1989. Through his years of boosting cars, Nunley had developed into an excellent getaway driver. Having finally found him outside of a vehicle, police approached Nunley on foot with a warrant for his arrest. He ran, but not very fast. He's a getaway driver, not a getaway (laughs) runner. runner. The foot chase lasted merely a few blocks. (laughs) Nunley was at last brought in for the abduction, rape, and murder of Ann Harrison. As detectives explained Taylor's confessions to Nunley, he immediately took umbrage with the version of events being explained to him. Detectives played back the video of Taylor's statement of the laundry list of terrible things Nunley initiated and Taylor simply tagged along with. Once it was finished nunley simply proclaimed that's bullshit and proceeded to tell his side of the story in the little details nunley's tale was indistinguishable from taylor's though he swapped the leads in nunley's statement taylor was the one who took Anne, the one who initiated the rape and the one who delivered the first stabs several crucial details actually support nunley's story over taylor's first Nunley claimed that Taylor was the principal rapist. He went further, claiming that he only pretended to rape Anne in order to save face, that he couldn't complete the act. Nunley is adamant. He only pretended to rape.
1: That is because he wanted to make make certain that the cops didn't you know didn't think that you uh, know like sorry your thing doesn't work anymore. That's that's what that was. That's what that was. I
0: don't know if he was thinking that far ahead. You, no, maybe, maybe he not. absolutely
1: was. Well, the yes. evidence
0: somewhat supports his assertion. I'm it, sorry
1: that I'm I'm on so much crack yeah. that I can't get it up right now. Like that's what Oof. it was. That's oh, that okay, is what yeah, that fair. was. Fair. That's yes.
0: disgusting and fair. Well, you 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 started <laughs> yeah. it. In a rare moment of truth, analysis of secretions showed that only Taylor's semen was present on Ann's body and clothes. Also, Nunley insisted that he always drove when he boosted cars. Given that Nunley taught Taylor the carjacking trade and that Taylor slipped up and mentioned that he was the one who put towels between the clinking glass teatops in the back seat when they were being pursued by police, it seemed to follow that Taylor would have been the one to leave the car and grab Anne. Unless the men swapped drivers at some point, Nunley seemed to be telling the truth. Their statements made a version of the truth finally out. The two men awaited their formal indictment, trial, and sentencing. All of the consequences of their actions laid out, inching toward them at the glacial pace of justice.
1: Did, um, did What's-His-Face bring a donut to court to sit on?
0: Oh. oh. <laughs> just curious. Probably probably's going to need it.
1: Probably. It's just curious. Let, let that one marinate for a little bit.
0: I suggest you let that one marinate. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Taylor wasn't feeling terribly patient. In mid-December of 1990, almost two years after Ann's murder, Taylor was scheduled to be taken from Jackson County Jail to a local hospital for a doctor's appointment. The long lead time for making medical appointments for convicts meant that Taylor had several weeks to plan, and plan he did. He filched a wire cutter from a maintenance cart and cut out a compartment in his shoe to hide the tool. Once he arrived at the hospital, Taylor used the cutter to snap his leg irons. He wrestled with his guards, got the upper hand, and took off, slipping his cuffs as he ran. Now, given how little care and foresight he has showed throughout this entire story,
1: right? The right. level you, of planning on, dispa- you know this was on display here—I'm sure
0: is I, I'm sad to say is impressive. Like it's, he, that's a far more planning than anything he's done.
1: Well, his planning, sure. fine. His Nothing planning, about but, him is but impressive. How about, this planning. How about, no, no, no. But how I feel like ex- he
0: stole somebody's homework here and got all these, but like, like
1: the execution of it though. Yeah. I, I can't imagine is going to go well. Like, well, let
0: me tell you, As with most daring escapes not planned by Andy Dufresne.
1: Dufresne. Andy Dufresne. Dufresne. Oh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Andy Dufresne. I blew it. You blew it. I'm editing that. You blew that one. I'm changing that. Okay, hold on. I'm fixing that. Okay. Reset.
1: (laughs) Reset. Start back from that. (laughs) How do I say (laughs) that? I'm I'm embarrassed for you. Yeah.
0: Um. (laughs) It's not the first time this happened. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I
1: love your guts. Uh, Dufresne. Dufresne. Do you know what movie that's from?
0: Yeah, of course. Shawshank. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. Andy Dufresne. Yeah. It was. Man, one of my favorites. I might go home and watch that tonight. Yeah.
0: I tell you, Anyways. maybe a lot of people who have never watched it are going to watch it, and some people are going to re-watch it.
1: If you haven't watched that, I'm so sorry for your life. Like, that is... Like,
0: I've watched it. I know. I'm just no. saying,
1: if you haven't watched it, I'm actually judging you, not even silently. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Don is sitting in open judgment.
1: (laughs) I am. All right. right, You uh, can edit that one. I'm sorry. Hang on a second. Why do you get to edit your shit, but you don't edit my stuff when I say that? There's
0: a (laughs) bunch of shit I've done that that went unedited. What's that... uh? Anyways. (laughs) Anyways.
1: <laughs> oh, when, hey, when, this, when, you, when you called it. It wasn't the Shawshank guy, so it ended when, in capture. Okay.
0: We moved on.
1: When you called it Bogota, Colombia?
0: Yeah, uh, instead of Bogota. But no, the. Um, it's still funny. The, ju- the, the juice that makes people go to sleep. Anastasia. <laughs> Anesthesia. See? <laughs> <laughs> it's not even juice. It's, <laughs> Yeah, of course. <laughs> Jonah,
1: during an episode, for those of you who have not ever heard this before, he called it Anastasia. And <gasps> it was just a little <laughs> verbal slip-up. I mean, thousands and thousands
0: of words, these things happen. <laughs>
1: oh, I am almost crying. And like force someone it's... to
0: walk away from the episode. Like they're, <laughs> and, they're like, and I'm the... <laughs> walking away from Midwest Murder, <laughs> I will the say, guy.
1: I will say, Jonah is one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my entire life, so I, I know he knows what it's called, <laughs> but it's still funny.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Anyway, Andy Dufresne, this guy is not him. This guy is not him.
0: Not the Shawshank guy. So not long after Taylor ran out of the hospital, the cops (laughs) caught up with him. It was a pretty easy caller because he was wearing a prison jumpsuit and was less than a mile from police headquarters. So, yeah, he should have dug the tunnel or whatever Shawshank guy did, I guess.
1: You could just call him Andy. It's okay.
0: We'll all know now. After almost yeah, and I I think he he really lacked the Morgan Freeman narration.
1: <laughs> right. So, right. You Honestly, don't if, got, you don't got that going for you. <laughs> if if Morgan Freeman could could narrate my life, I know I would I would kill it every day. Like I would I would I would get dishes done. I would I would shake the hands and kiss the babies and just and just do all the shit I need to do. Like that would be if just Morgan. If, even done. even if somebody sounds like him, I'm cool with that too. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be Morgan Freeman. Yeah, My empty. go-to
0: life narrator would be David, At- David Attenborough. Oh, that's but a good one, too. Anyways.
1: Anyway, after, okay, now, now we're getting ridiculous. After
0: okay. almost two years of legal finagling, the two men were advised by their lawyers to forego a jury trial in favor of pleading guilty and being sentenced by a judge. The judge, who would be hearing the case, Alvin Randall, had recently sentenced Robert Burdella, the serial killer known as the Kansas City Butcher, to life in prison without parole.
1: Which we covered that one a couple episodes ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They took their lawyer's advice, hoping, no doubt, to receive a similar sentence in lieu of the death penalty. Anne's parents were on hand to witness Nunley's testimony, an event that inscribed in their hearts disgust, horror, and parental pain beyond comprehension. How could any parents sit there and listen to their daughter's rapist and murderer recount the events of that night with the ease of someone who, as Bob Harrison commented, had had his driver's license revoked? How could a parent survive that? And the answer is simple. Bob and Janelle Harrison had already been to hell. They had already survived the agonizing what-ifs of Anne's disappearance. The legless, catastrophic moment of seeing their little girl's body. The innumerable hollow days after everyone else's life returned to normal. They had found a reservoir of strength to continue raising their surviving daughters, Deborah and Lisa, as well as they could. As Lisa mentioned in a message on social media, her parents still taught them how beautiful the world is. The invisible vortex of Anne's death hung over their heads every day, beckoning with the awful gravity of despair. What more could the words of her killers do that their actions hadn't already done? The evidence against the two men was almost as damning as their confessions. Luminol testing revealed blood spattered across a section of paneling in Nunley's basement as well as blood on the carpet— an analysis of carpet sweepings from Nunley's basement found hair-matching samples taken from Ann's body. After both men described the knives that were used in her murder, pol- police easily located them in Nunley's mother's house, not hidden, fucking rinsed and put back in with all the other knives. Forensics also matched one of the knives to a silicone imprint taken of a wound inflicted on Anne's liver during the stabbing. Hair samples taken from both men matched hairs found in the trunk of the Monte Carlo where Anne's body was found. Pubic hairs taken from Taylor matched those found on Anne. Semen from Taylor was found on Anne's body and clothes, confirming the rape and fingerprints lifted from Anne's bra and clothes matched those of both Taylor and Nunley. After evidence was presented and all the hearings concluded, both Michael Taylor and Roderick Roger Nunley were sentenced to death on May 4th, 1991, over two years after their brutalization of Ann Harrison. As with any death sentence, a slew of appeals followed, none of which held any water Multiple judges reissued the same verdict, the same sentence, over and over. Yet their lawyers managed to delay the finality of that verdict for 25 years through a variety of stall tactics, including an effort to challenge the actual procedures of execution in Missouri. Michael Taylor was executed on February 26, 2014. Roderick Nunley on September 1st, 2015. The executions were attended by Ann's father, uncle, and two close family friends. Harrison's parents, Bob and Janelle, released a statement that read in part, quote, For the last 26 years, Janelle and I have, on occasion, experienced a form of compassion for not only Roderick Nunley and Michael Taylor, but especially their families. No one involved deserved the pain, suffering, or anguish these two cowards have bestowed on this community. This feeling diminishes rapidly as our thoughts are uncontrollably diverted to the vision of Anne being dragged into the stolen car by her hair and stomped to the floorboard in an attempt to hide her from sight as they transported her to Nunley's home. If this is the only form of closure we receive, then we will gladly take it.
1: I'm so I'm so glad in so many of these stories, and, and cases that have been dragged on for decades. A lot of times, the parents aren't there because they've passed away or whatever. Yeah, like I I have the Jonah bumps with that because that is like thank God they were there.
0: They got to see it carried out. And I think that matters. Yeah. Yeah. This was not a story of criminal masterminds, calculated serial killers, or complex evil plans. The evil in this story is lightning quick, random, ruthless, and impossible to grasp a case of terrible misfortune and criminal behavior. Absent moral logic. The killers were caught quickly, pled guilty, were sentenced, and eventually executed. Despite openly admitting their guilt to the court, it took 25 years and nearly countless hours to execute these men. And I understand that the wheels of justice often turn slowly, but that reeks like inefficient bureaucracy of the highest order. The fact that these two men lived out a twenty-five-year appeals process that lasted a decade longer than the life of Sweet Ann Harrison makes my blood boil.
1: Wow, i i have I have one other comment, and and we've we've seen this with the the Gabby Petito case. So often, when someone goes missing, that isn't a person of color or a woman of color specifically you know, in comparison to this one, we don't get the, the helicopter search. We don't get the, those search parties. We don't, we don't get all of those resources. And, and that, that's something where unfortunately in 1989 compared to 2023, it's not that different. I struggle with that. And that doesn't take away, that doesn't take away anything, from these women. It doesn't take, take away from Ann Harrison. No, It doesn't take away from Gabby Patio. Everybody should have that, that at their fingertips,
0: male, female, whatever your, your, your ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you go missing. It's mobilize the forces, get, get people involved. Let's get out there.
1: Yeah. That's my only, that's my only one thing. My only observation here, other than how freaking horrible it is.
0: Sources for this episode of Midwest Murder, historicnewspapers.com, the book By the Side of the Road, The True Story of the Abduction and Murder of Anne Harrison by author Marla Bernard, the Chicago Booth.edu review, How Bad Was Crack Cocaine, KMBC Editorial Staff article, Missouri Executes Anne Harrison's Killer, Roderick Nunley, Landmark Recovery, The History of the War on Drugs, the Reagan era, The Reagan Era and Beyond. Also, the State versus Nunley and State versus Taylor court documents. This episode of Midwest Murder was co written by Tyler Hancock. We're excited to welcome him to the team. Midwest Murder is co hosted by Don Palumbo and Joan Alanto and produced by the Good Talk Network. Thank you, everybody, for being here with us tonight at the Carnegie Center with the Minot Area Council of the Arts. Yeah, thank you.